Hello, thank you for joining us for this podcast interview with Sir Richard Evans to discuss the life and work of Eric Hobsbawm. I'm Jordan Buchanan and I will convene this podcast while Curtis Large leads the interview. This podcast is part of the Public History Project with the Scottish Centre for Global History at the University of Dundee. Our project promotes graduate researchers and their work as a way to increase the presence of global history in the public consciousness. So thank you, Richard, for agreeing to participate in our public history project. We appreciate your support for our goals. Could you please introduce yourself for our podcast audience? Well, thank you for inviting me on, Jordan. Uh, I'm Richard Evans. I'm, uh, I guess now I'm a freelance historian, journalist and uh, a writer, but I've had a number of academic posts over my career. Um, I was uh, educated at Oxford. I've been a professor at uh, Birkbeck, University of London. I've also taught, not far from where you're based, I began my career by teaching at Stirling University before moving on to University of East Anglia. I've written uh, quite a number of books uh, about German history, modern German history, beginning with the feminist movement in Germany, which was based on my dissertation at Oxford, and moving on through uh, Death in Hamburg, which is a study of the cholera epidemic in 1892, Rituals of Retribution, a book that is uh, a study of capital punishment and the death penalty in German history, uh, which I rather foolishly um, wrote a thousand pages long because I thought German professors wouldn't take me seriously unless I'd produced a thousand page book. Uh, a small one, which is well known, In Defense of History, it came out of a teaching course at Birkbeck, and then a three volume history of Nazi Germany, followed by Penguin's uh, volume seven in the Penguin History of Europe called The Pursuit of Power, Europe, 1815 to 1914. And my most recent book is called The Hitler Conspiracies, which is uh, subtitled uh, The Third Reich and the Paranoid Imagination. The, the American publishers uh, took that out and didn't have a subtitle because they thought American readers wouldn't understand the concept of the paranoid imagination. So I'm currently working on a book about why people supported and worked for the Nazis. Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, so I'm now going to hand over to Curtis Large who will lead this interview. Mm -hmm. Curtis is a graduate from the University of Dundee and he is now completing his postgraduate studies at the University of Cambridge. He's currently writing a book review for the journal Nations and Nationalism on the Hobsbawm's post-Thomas collection of essays entitled On Nationalism. So thank you Curtis for agreeing to design and lead this discussion. My pleasure. For me, a rare pleasure of studying under lockdown over the past year has been that restrictions on social activities meant more time being unlocked to make new academic discoveries, be that through listening to old interviews or picking up books I'd had on my reading list for a while. Having overlooked Eric's work in my undergraduate degree, much to my regret, I rediscovered his 1995 appearance on BBC Radio 4's Desert Island Discs during my first term at Cambridge. From there I've essentially not looked back and remained fascinated by his life and work. So I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Evans, author of the recent biography, Eric Hobsbawm, A Life in History, a book as comprehensive as it is engaging. Thank you for being with the podcast, Richard. Thank you very much for joining, joining me. I forgot to mention it, actually, but that, that uh, a large biography of Eric Hobsbawm appeared in 2019. Um, it came out of a, a commission to write a short-ish obituary for the British Academy, uh, and I discovered so much material in his house archived away. He 
he seemed to throw nothing away that I decided to do it at the full length and got a grant and um, had some help, particularly with languages that uh, he uh, spoke, but I don't like Spanish and Portuguese. Um, and so it appeared, yeah, and it's a, a first biography. No doubt there will be more in years to come by other people. Yeah, well, I found it thoroughly enjoyable. Um, so I'll now start with the questions. So what encouraged you to undertake a biography of Eric? And how did you find the experience? Well, um, I knew him slightly uh, over a long period of time. Uh, and uh, uh, I also organized his um, 80th birthday celebrations at uh, Birkbeck, where he was where he taught from 1947 until his retirement. Um, and he uh, uh, and there were various other birthday celebrations, too. So uh, I um, the British Academy if you're a fellow of the British Academy, it's the National Academy for the Arts and Humanities and Social Sciences, <clears throat> you get what they call a biographical memoir. And these are published in the proceedings of the British Academy, which means about five people read them. But they're often very scholarly. Some of them are absolutely wonderful. I particularly admire David Canadine's memoir of J.H. Plum, for example. And uh, so you, you are expected to do some research for them. So I went to Eric's house. Well, I've been there before, obviously, but, um, and I was introduced to the, the, the top floor. And it's a three floor house in Hampstead and it was just piled sky high with material and endless huge amounts. Um, and uh, so I, I got a, one of my PhD students who came and we, she digitally photographed stuff that I produced over three days in the in, in the house and uh, unpublished diaries, letters, uh, unpublished memoirs, uh, 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 books of various kinds, um, you know, the memoirs of his travels, all, all kinds of material. And I very quickly realized there's more than enough here for a full-scale biography. And since so I, I delivered the British Academy piece, but that was only a very kind of brief summary. So he's a was probably the world's most famous historian, translated into 50 languages and more by the time of his death. He was also present at, and to some degree involved in many of the great events of 20th century history. Um, the Nazi seizure of power, he was in Berlin as that was beginning. The French Popular Front, the Spanish Civil War, the Cold War, the Second World War, all of these things, and he played a very, significant part also in British politics in the late 20th century. So uh, as an advisor to uh, an influence on the Labour Party, and he's also a lifelong communist, which is also, I think, rather fascinating uh, to see how someone as, as intelligent and, and clever as he was could stick with the idea of communism throughout his life. So all of these reasons I got, I decided I was going to write the biography. I had to do it fairly quickly because uh, I wanted to present it to his widow, Marlena, who is not young. Um, and uh, I got uh, the permission of the family to have exclusive access to its papers. I got a grant um, to employ research assistants and cover travel expenses. Uh, and his papers were soon moved to Warwick, to uh, to Trade Union Archive, Modern Records Center. So lots of trips to Warwick. Um, and uh, his agents' papers, literary agents' papers were all in Austin, Texas. So I got someone there to go through them. MI5 had six fat files on him, surveillance from Second World War onwards. 
And uh, so there's an overwhelming mass of material uh, and uh, there's nothing I like more as an archival historian than a big, big archive full of stuff that nobody else has ever seen before. So that's really what drove me on. And how did you find writing the biography knowing that Eric Hobsbawm himself had written an account of his life in his own times, interesting times as it is now? Yeah, there were two problems. I mean, the first is that he had written his autobiography, as you say, uh, interesting times. Uh, and of course, I, I read it again. I read it when it came out. I reread it just to make sure that there was some point in doing it myself. But in fact, it's what some of the reviewers called an impersonal autobiography. He, he writes about uh, the impact of the times. It's more about the times than the life, really. Um, and uh, he leaves out huge masses of, of, of material that I found in his papers. So, uh, of course, I was dependent to some degree on uh, his autobiography, particularly in the early stages of his life. Though I did uh, find, or one of my researchers found his school reports still in the school where he studied in Vienna in the 1920s and other material. And, and uh, his autobiography is quite discreet as well. Uh, and uh, I decided not to be discreet, uh, which the family didn't object to at all. Uh, there's no skeletons in the cupboard, really. Uh, so that's one problem. And then, um, of course, the other problem is I'd never written a biography before. And some of the reviewers described me, I thought a bit oddly, as not a natural biographer. By which I think they mean they meant I didn't speculate. So if you read a lot of biographies, I say, "Oh, he must have thought this, and it's likely that he thought that, and so on." And I don't. I stick to the sources very carefully. Um, biography. I mean, H. P. Taylor says somewhere, "Biography is not history, but every historian should try it once." So this is my go at it. Uh, it's easier than history in the sense that in history you have to make your make up your subject. You have to decide what you're writing about, where the boundaries are, how uh, structures and so on. In a biography, it's given cradle to the grave. Um, and, and you can weave, of course, everyone leave, lives several lives at the same time. You discover very, very quickly uh, academic, publishing, personal, political, all of these things. And you have to kind of weave them together in the narrative. And that was a fascinating part of structuring the book. But the basic drive of it is is chronological, and then um, the, the the where it's more difficult than history is you have to be exhaustive. You have to find out everything, and you become a bit of a detective, um, and you get that kind of an absurd, pedantic pleasure out of discovering, as I did, that he was. You know, the date usually given for the date of his birth is wrong. The date of his, his divorce is, is out by two years. Uh, all sorts of little little tiny details you can kind of correct. So uh, I, I have to say I enjoyed it absolutely very thoroughly. I really did. Great. And it's interesting what you say about not speculating, because I found that even though you're just sticking to the sources, his experience of the French Popular Front uh, and his his involvement in uh, the pre-war communist movement in Paris um, was probably my favorite part, just because it's, you almost don't need to speculate. The, uh, the facts speak for themselves. It seemed like a very exciting time to be there. And I think that really comes out in the book. Well, one of the great pleasures of writing the book was that he's a wonderful writer um, and there's huge masses of stuff he never published, uh, which are brilliantly written. 
uh, including things like short stories, for example, and then these accounts of his travels in, in, in France and uh, to some extent in Latin America as well, uh, recounting his personal experiences. And they're, they're very exciting. And what, what drove me in the, the big question, as it were, that drove me is how does his personal life, which comes through very strongly in all these unpublished papers that I, I read, diaries, memoirs, letters, and so on, how does that relate to his professional life? And I found interestingly that it dovetails very closely. So in the first part of his life, when he was a, a kind of convinced communist, he wrote about the, uh, when he became a historian, about the rise of labor, the rise of the labor movement. And then when he began to drift away from the Communist Party, he became interested in uh, kind of marginal and deviant people like bandits and, and, and millenarians and so on. Uh, we're talking about the first half or more of the 1950s here. Uh, and at the same time, he had got divorced uh, and he was uh, living among marginal and even people uh, uh, as a jazz critic, an enthusiast, and he would go into the clubs and bars of Soho uh, in, in the evening after teaching at Birkbeck. And uh, so there's a kind of, and then, then he married Marlene, uh, uh, as, as one of the reviewers said, the biographer's curse, a happy marriage. Um, and he, uh, he then settled down, had children, and then began writing these big synoptic surveys of the age of revolution and so on. So it, it, it's, I think it's, it's a very interesting kind of dovetailing of his um, personal life and his polit political and intellectual life there. And I tried to show these connections. Yeah, and, and you've written and said today that, that when Eric died in 2012, he was the most famous historian in the world, probably. And, and his books were translated into more than 50 languages. Mm. I'm quoting you here uh, as renowned in uh, Brazil and India as much as in Britain and the United States. Yeah. Given this description, how would you best characterize Eric's impact on global history? Well, um, he's. Uh, there are a number of things that made him so popular and influential. First of all, his um, ability, almost uncanny, to categorize and systematize. So uh, all the time he's working out how do things fit into a bigger picture. He's asking big questions. So he develops and immense or popularizes a number of key concepts that are still being discussed. The 17th century crisis social banditry, the short 20th century, the long 19th century, uh, a, a whole string of these things that I think have been very influential and helped structure his work and give it an intellectual power. Uh, and then secondly, his ability as a writer, although he grew up in Vienna to, to, uh, and also in the early 30s in Berlin, he uh, was bilingual. His mother, his parents died when he was in his early teens, but his mother, was a, uh, a translator from um, English into German of novels and wrote her own novels, insisted the family spoke English at home. And um, in fact, his school reports, which were pre-printed and the teachers had to fill in the sort of boxes, um, and they were obviously inherited from the House of Monarchy, which is a multilingual monarchy. So, so there's a little box for native language. and. Um, in his case, one of the reports said native language English stroke German, so he was a native speaker of English as well as German, and um, incidentally spoke German with a 
very strong Viennese accent, which quite surprised me when we did an interview together in Germany. And he, um, so he could write, uh, and he uh, was steeped in literature. Unlike most, I'd say most Marxist writers, um, he had this huge kind of um, background uh, in reading world literature or reading French, German, English, American. Um, he, he was, so he has this wonderful way of communicating things and a human sympathy. He obviously sympathizes with bandits and social rebels, even though he thinks they're kind of, uh, you know, brushed aside by the mainstream thrust of history, but he still sympathizes with them. And so all of those, I think, made him very widely, widely read and very influential. His influence, I think, was first uh, the influence of the French Annales School of History on him was very strong. I mean, his mentor, um, Munir Poston, economic historian at Cambridge, uh, actually was in very close touch with the uh, with the um, Annales School, brought Marc Bloch to Cambridge in the 30s. And uh, Eric Holson lived a lot of the time in Paris in the 50s and mixed with alternative kind of uh, radicals, not the French Communist Party. And all of these influences, I think, Plus the intervention of George Weidenfeld, who conceived this big 60 volume history of civilization, civilization in the French sense of, uh, gave Eric a, a kind of ability to cover every aspect of history. Nothing was left out. And that was very, very important in the 50s and early 60s, really before the arrival of social history um, uh, as, as part of the mainstream. So, uh, I, I think that breadth of sympathy, you know, you look at the age of volumes, they cover uh, economic, society, culture, science, I mean, absolutely everything. And that I think is important. And then finally, um, for the standards of the time, he had a strong awareness of global history. Now we read his age of books and they seem very Eurocentric. Uh, and they are. The story is of the uh, how the European industrial and uh, industrial revolution and the political French revolution, its ideas spread across the world. That's the theme. But at the same time, he's very much aware of the rest of the world, which most European historians were not. And some of his arguments look at the impact of other parts of the globe on Europe. So in particular, for example, he explains the industrial revolution in Britain through the uh, through the British acquisition of, of North India and creating a kind of market for cotton from from the Americas and from the mills cotton mills of Manchester. Uh, so it's uh, there's a very kind of broad global uh, global sweep of his work, which at the same time, of course, doesn't rule out the fact that on our own perspectives now he's seen this rather Eurocentric. And that, that world focus sometimes landed him in, in hot water, if I, if I remember correctly. When he was a, a fledgling academic at Birkbeck, I seem to remember a particularly unsavory character called R.R. Darlington, who uh, assured him that if it wasn't to do with the English kings or queens or, or uh, a medieval battle, that it wasn't real history. Well, Darlington was a medievalist who uh, was a kind of classic dry as dust historian who edited uh, quite well, of course, but edited medieval charters. And, and he thought that nobody who, uh, anybody who did not work on primary source material uh, was not really a proper historian. 
uh, and Darlington as a professor in London at that time was permanent head of department. So he blocked uh, Eric's um, uh, promotion. Uh, given his reputation, Eric was promoted to professorship scandalously late in his life. But Eric did not deal with primary. He's not an arch archival historian. Um, he's a man of big ideas uh, and, and operates at that level, though he did use, of course, a lot of very obscure printed sources, um, which he found at the British Library, the LSE Library, a lot of, lot of trade union stuff and so on. But he was not that kind of archival historian. Um, Darlington was, was um, famously, because well, I was at Birkbeck for several years after Darlington, long since departed, but one of my older colleagues told me that um, Darlington didn't like his um, lecturers to marry. He, uh, and, and this, this older colleague of mine eventually said, uh, plucked up his courage when he got married after sort of hiding his girlfriend from Darlington when she visited him. Uh, he said, oh, Professor Darlington, I got married, I'd like to say, and he said, what did you want to do a thing like that for? Uh, but uh, make sure it doesn't get in the way of your work. And so, <laughs> figure from another age, I think. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> and um, that, that ties in quite nicely to, to one of my questions about methodology, really. Um, obviously, Eric produced some of the most renowned historical works of the 20th century, most mm. of which are still in print and enjoyed by thousands yeah. around the world. Yeah. And he achieved all this without becoming what he described as an archive rat. So given its preference for only synthesizing secondary sources, why does it remain important for historians to consult primary materials? Well, it's not quite fair to say he, he synthesized secondary sources. A lot of what he used was, was primary printed material. Um, you'll find that particularly in his monographs on uh, primitive rebels, uh, banditry and so on. Um, and, and even in the age of books, there's a lot of original printed source material there, but he, it's true he did not go into the archives. And you can, you can illustrate this by my own experience with writing his own life. Uh, you know, I, I, I read his um, Interesting Times, his autobiography, and of course a lot of his published material, a very large quantity articles, I mean, hundreds of articles and uh, in, in all kinds of journals from the Economic History Review to the New Statesman and Marxism Today. But on going into his private archive and finding all this handwritten published material, my, my views of him completely changed. And you see the man behind the, the work and the broad, the breadth of his range of abilities and his writings <clears throat> and uh, and his private life. So it's very important for historians to go into the archives, but don't go in, of course, just expecting to find stuff that will then tell you what to think. You have to go in with questions. Um, but I've said all that kind of thing before. It's a dialogue between the historian, theory, historiography, and the source material. And each bounces off the other one until you end up with some kind of synthesis. And going back to that kind of breadth um, that, that you know, we've, we've celebrated in Eric's work before, um, since he himself rejected any notion of a Hobbesbornian school of history, and I think you agree in the biography, what do you think made his approach unique and how might students learn from it? Well, uh, I mean, I, I, obviously he, uh, its abilities were, were unique, but of course, because of his influence, his approach in the end wasn't unique. I think probably the most um, 
the, the biggest lessons to learn from him are uh, how to use theory and how to uh, test it against the empirical material and how to write and how to use examples and quotations and all of these things and how to cast your net very wide. So, for example, you know, in my book, Seed of Power, Europe, 1815 to 1914, um, I do try and cover every aspect of um, British of British and continental European history. I try and cover everywhere from Iceland down to Sicily and Ireland across to Russia. Um, I try and bring in social, political, cultural, all kinds of different intellectual histories. Uh, and of course, having uh, and try and bind it all together with this concept of the pursuit of power, which of course is bounces off the previous volume in the Penguin history, Tim Blanning's A Pursuit of Glory, and how things change in people's aspirations and so on. And that, that without Eric's influence, I don't think I would have had that, that approach. And of course, I, you know, it keeps me awake at night thinking of things I should have put in and didn't get. And it, didn't get in. I'm racked with guilt for not having included the omnibus, for example, only trams. <laughs> um, I mean, as Tony Jutt says, and I quote him, the late lamented Tony Jutt, um, died far too young. Um, but he says, I quote him at the end of the book, that uh, there's no Hobbesbormium school, as it were, unlike, say, the school of Richard Cobb, of historians who just do the, the French provinces in the in, in the 17, in 1792 to four. But um, his influence is so broad and so wide uh, that it's kind of suffused the uh, thinking of an entire generation of historians. And so in that, in that respect, do you think his work is, obviously, I suppose it's unique because you know, he wrote it and sadly Eric's no longer with us. But do you think maybe a companion to his work might appear? Or do you think historians in the future will mostly just take inspiration from the way he wrote uh, his, his history rather than trying to comment on it, the history he wrote um, you know, as, a, as a sort of single corpus of work. Well, and I think I, I mean, there's a need, a clear need, I think, for a study of his ideas and how they develop through his printed works. Because the fascinating thing is how far uh, Leninist concepts um, suffused the age of revolution, some of his earlier work, and then how progressively over time his Marxism became increasingly diluted um, because in the end as a as a historian he he had to was forced to recognize that if the evidence goes against the theory then you have to abandon the theory and that becomes very clear in the age of empire his third volume in this age of series where he simply says well I, you know Lenin and Luxembourg and to extend Hobson, Hobson um, but particularly Lenin and Luxembourg, tried to um, explain European imperialism in the late 19th century, the scramble for Africa and so on, in economic terms, the, the export of surplus capital or the uh, exploitation for profit of the colonies. And those theories, he says, clearly don't work. Uh, it's not it's not driven by ec economics. So that's a very good example, I think, of how, in the end, he was more a historian than a, a dogmatist. The political question, considering Eric's political prominence outside of academia, thinking here of his mm. Communist Party activism, later influence on the development of the British Labour movement, what do you think is the role of a historian in the public realm? Well, I wouldn't, um, I, uh, well, uh, Eric Hodgson was a communist, but I'd say with a small C, so uh, he decided early on in his life he wasn't going to be 
uh, an activist um, and uh, he was going to be intellectual. So he eventually drifted away from the party, although he continued membership of it. Um, but he was never sort of straight down the line, communist activist selling magazines on street corners, did go to demonstrations and he wrote uh, letters or supported letters, signed letters uh, on political issues, not very frequently. It was in the 1980s really that he um, took a role in British left-wing politics uh, of a larger kind when he wrote uh, an article that quickly became a source of um, discussion and debate saying the industrial working class is now declining and the Labour Party had to seek for other classes, social classes, alliances with other parties in order to come to power. That was taken up by Neil Kennock and was one of the intellectual foundations of New Labour. Um, so, uh, and then when he got famous, of course, he was approached to support all kinds of different political causes. Uh, I wouldn't want to prescribe any kind of public or public or political activism for historians. There's so many kinds of different kinds of things you can do in a historian. And not everybody wants to uh, engage in public life or even write for a larger audience. Uh, even old Darlington actually performed an important service for historians by editing medieval documents. Uh, and that can be extremely and often is extremely valuable. Uh, but I do think that if, you've, uh, are, if you can do it, uh, and if you are inclined to do it, it's a good thing for historians to become involved in public affairs, to um, write uh, about, I mean, the role of the history, the nation's history and public life in this country is extremely important in the current so-called culture wars. Uh, and the misuse of history by politicians is something I think we ought as a, as a profession to criticize and object to. Uh, there are many different ways in which you can involve yourself in, in, in public life. Uh, and uh, I've tried to do that in, in a variety of ways and, and found it extremely, um, extremely rewarding and hope I've had some kind of effect. Currently, I'm supporting a court case to make it mandatory for government to keep records of communications uh, of an informal kind uh, through WhatsApp and similar uh, similar media uh, as that. There's, there are always things that we can we can do. Well, and when you spoke of your of sort of involvement in the court case, there, I, I did jump to, to your involvement in the David Irving trial as well. So it's just another way that you can you know defend history and, and sort of be true to the discipline <coughs> while also accruing a public profile, uh, albeit inadvertently. Yes, uh, I mean, as, as an expert on modern German history, I was asked by the defence team um, in the lawsuit, the libel suit brought by David Irving against Deborah Lipstadt over allegations of Holocaust denial and the falsification of history. In uh, the late, at the, towards the end of the 1990s, I was asked to perform as well as an expert witness and write a report looking at her allegations and, and seeing, did he actually falsify history? Um, and uh, Anthony Julius, who's the solicitor in London, best known at the time for representing Princess Diana in her divorce case against Prince Charles. Um, uh, he, he said, yeah, it'd be very interesting, uh, won't take very long, six months uh, or so, you know, 
uh, you get paid a standard rate for uh, being a court witness and so on. And in fact, the whole thing took over three years and involved enormous amounts of work and it became a very big, big trial. And I'd been, Anthony had read In Defense of History, which I published uh, just as the case was beginning. Uh, and he'd also read my, or at least had on his shelf, my thousand page book about capital punishment in German history. So I knew my way around. There's a whole couple, couple of hundred pages on the Nazi period there. So I knew my way around these things. I could read the old German handwriting and I could, uh, as it were, cope with the more philosophical aspects of the case. What is the difference, for example, between an imaginative reinterpretation of a document and a deliberate uh, misinterpretation or falsification of it? So I got involved in that. It took up a big chunk of time and I'm very proud that I did it. No, it was excellent work and perhaps you were rivaling Eric as the world's most famous historian when someone actually portrayed you in a film about that. Well, case. yeah, I mean, they made, it was, that was all very interesting um, because there was a BBC Two programme about, about the case not long afterwards in which I was played by Michael Kitchen, best known for Foyle's War. Um, and I actually ran across him in a pavement cafe a couple of months later. So I wouldn't usually do this, but I went out to him and said, oh, Michael Kitchen, are you, are you Michael Kitchen? He said, yes, and I think it's kind of some fan of Foyle's War. And I said, well, I, you played me on television. So, and it's not <laughs> often an actor has that someone character coming up, you know. So he, I said who I was, and he said, I hope I played you to your satisfaction. Uh, and I said, you played me much better than I could play myself, because you could rehearse, and I only had one shot in the witness book. <laughs> Um, but there were various attempts. I was even paid a bit of money by Ridley Scott uh, to, uh, for the rights to my book about the case. Um, and uh, there was a screenplay by Ronald Harwood, but it was, it was just a courtroom drama and Ridley Scott, although he tried to get it fixed by a, a script doctor in Hollywood, um, in the end didn't pursue it because it was too boring. Uh, and it's only when Deborah Lipster, the defendant, produced her own memoir with a very personal angle that it, it could be filmed because it then gave you a figure to identify with that sentence. So then David Hare picked it up and he came and talked to me about it for a couple of hours with a, with a secretary taking notes and so on, um, and produced a, a, a screenplay which was based on uh, Deborah Lipstadt's own personal experience and uh, in which I was played by the late lamented um, uh, John Sessions, who I have to say should have lost weight before he played me, but otherwise was uh, was pretty good. I mean, I, I looked at it, you know, I saw him and I was like, my God, I was good. And of course, I realised that he was an actor who practised and could project himself forcefully and so on. Uh, and and I probably just sort of mumbled whatever he whatever he said, um, but the film is a good it's a good one. Um, it's it's very solid, worthy. I mean, it's not a great movie, but it's a good movie, and I think it does it could is worth worthy to be used in law courses because it explains with absolute clarity the difference between American and British uh, English American English uh, libel law, um, and also brings up issues of falsification, of course, and central issues about how you write history and how not to write history. Um, so um, uh, I, I don't think it's made me terribly famous, to be honest, but it wasn't a sort of smash, you know, it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't a smash hit. It wasn't part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or anything like that, but it's a, it's a good film and I'm very, I think it was done well.
uh, nonsense. Take heed all historians aiming for Hollywood, as, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we'll bring it back to Eric for our, for our final question. Um, so following from Eric and his focus on definitive time periods in his age of quartet, so revolution, capital, empire, and extremes, as well as his attempt at determining future trends in, in the new century, mm. how important do you think COVID-19 will be in defining how historians look back on our own? Um, well, uh, you know, I was talking to somebody of my own generation recently with a friend and he said well you know we, we baby boomers born after world war ii have uh, we've been fortunate enough not to live through any major global catastrophe at all unlike previous generations but suddenly here it is you know um coming towards the end of our lives and we're suddenly trying to cope with this massive uh, catastrophe but i don't think uh, and here I think it differ with my, my friend Peter Hennessy, who's, who's an optimist. I don't think it's comparable to 1945, as he does. Um, the war um, uh, forced people to endure an immense number of hardships, I think much worse than we're enduring now, and for several years. I mean, 1939, 1945. And... Uh, I think they were determined that the sacrifices they made were, should all be in a good cause and that the world should change. And so the Labour government was elected, Clement Attlee, and created modern Britain, which only began to be dismantled by, by Mrs Thatcher. So uh, it was a sense of, of the world opening up for a bright future in which society will be better organised for the benefits of all and would justify the sacrifices made in the struggle against Hitler. Now, I think people just want to get back to a normal life as far as possible, the life they were leading before the pandemic. Uh, we want to be able to go back to uh, the theater, to the concerts, to holidays abroad, to all kinds of uh, things that we were doing beforehand without fear and without let or, or, or hindrance and without regulation. Um, and that's still, I think, on its way. I still haven't got there yet, but I think basically this is, it's not going to cause, it's not going to be a big watershed. And also periodization is always really difficult in, in history because history isn't a simple linear uh, time uh, timeline. Uh, there are all sorts of different things with different chronologies happening at the same time. So the economy doesn't develop in the same way as politics and not the same. You know, feminist historians have said they have their own kind of uh, trajectory. And so there's always something arbitrary about uh, time, um, uh, time barriers or, or, or dividing lines. Um, and I think Eric Hobson got it wrong in the 19th century. The idea of the long 19th century is fair enough. Um, but the age of capital is not a meaningful period, really. Uh, you know, 1848 to 1875, uh, nothing really happened in 1875 to make it a big dividing line. And he should not have finished the age of empire in 1914. For him, I, I might, that may be in a publisher that uh, insisted that, Weidenfeld maybe, but for him, of course, 1917, the Russian revolution, that was a big dividing line. So really, his short 20th century shouldn't have been 1914 to 89, should have been 1917 to 89. So it's a tricky, a tricky thing, but I don't think we're going to look back in future years at this as a big dividing line in history. Well, I hope not. And, um, you know, I had to squeeze in at least one COVID question, but uh, mm -hmm. thankfully it was a bit more analytical than, uh, than a lot I've heard. 
Um, can I just thank you, Richard, for, for okay. appearing on the podcast? Very enjoyable. Thank you very and, much. Um, Eric Hobbs' Warmer Life and History is published by Abacus and Little Brown and is available for purchase. I highly recommend you check it out. It was uh, one of my favorite reads for a while. So I'll now hand over to, to Jordan, um, this podcast host, uh, to conclude things. Thank you. Again, thank you, Richard, for participating in this interview. We hope that it was an opportunity to reflect on your own work and that our listeners found it helpful to assist in reflecting on their own practice. Also, thank you to Curtis for leading this interview for us and designing these thought-provoking questions. Finally, the Scottish Centre for Global History is still receiving blog and podcast proposals from graduate students to share their research through our organisation. If you're interested, please send us an email with a brief pitch on how you would like to contribute. Thank you for listening.